You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Good morning, church, and happy almost new year. As we think about uh, this time of year especially, it's, uh, we're coming up on a brand new year, and uh, you remember, remember when people used to do New Year's resolutions? Not, not so many people do them anymore. We all know why, because we've heard over and over and over again, well, people only keep their resolutions for a week or two or three, and then they forget all about them, so why bother? But actually, God's Word is all about resolution, actually. It's about transformation. It's about growing in Christ. It's about moving from being children to being mature in Christ to becoming adults in Christ. It's about becoming more and more like Him. It's a constant process that we should be thinking about every day of our lives, and that's what this passage we're going to be looking at today is all about. It's Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Um, We're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 3, but we'll be looking at um, just uh, all, all six of those verses as we read this morning. So stand if you would, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Lord, we thank you for these moments we can come together to study, to hear, to receive, and to be changed by the power of your word. Lord, we pray that you would now open our hearts that we might hear and receive, open our eyes and our ears, that we might be a people that truly are transformed by the power of your word. Lord, we commit our time to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I suspect that we probably all know or have at least encountered uh, people who claim to be believers, but um, somehow their way of life and um, pattern of life tells a different story. And uh, not just a slip up or a lapse of, uh, you know, uh, behavior from time to time, but really uh, a life that uh, leaves believers wondering and non-believers convinced that uh, they really don't want anything to do with Christ or Christianity. I was copied on an email, business-related, recently, nobody in this church, thank God, because it wasn't any email. Uh, it was sort of this uh, cauldron of, of acidity, of, um, of anger and um, derision and general uh, unkindness. And uh, so I thought about that, um, my heart sank because as I read just below the signature line was a verse from Scripture. It was a verse from 1 John that actually I'm going to be referring to this morning uh, about God's will and doing God's will. And I thought, 
I wonder what impact this is going to have on non-believers who are reading this email. And um, I couldn't help but thinking maybe the cause of Christ would be far better served if this person who apparently claimed the name of Christ would just as soon keep it quiet and leave the verse off. I understand that. We all mess up at times. Uh, I'm a little hesitant to put bumper stickers on my car because I know the way that I drive sometimes. <laughs> I mean, let's think about it. Uh, we're going to say I'm a believer and we proclaim that. We have an obligation and a responsibility to actually live like that. And when we do sin against others, uh, we need to be a people who come clean and come clean quickly and seek forgiveness and restoration. That's how we live our lives. And this passage is all about that. It's about being obedient to God's Word. It's about living lives that are truly transformed and continue to be transformed on an ongoing basis. Not just some New Year's resolution that we make, but a commitment to a life that is growing more and more like Christ, to being transformed from glory to glory into the very image of Christ. And to behave and live like He lived as our perfect example. And so uh, the way we walk should, in Christ should play out in how we, how we talk. Uh, we should live a lives that are pretty opposite to what the world's standards are. We should live profoundly different. And so uh, our values, our language, our emails, our tweets, and our texts, and even, yes, even our Facebook postings should glorify the Lord, should be profoundly different sometimes exactly opposite of what the society tells us that we ought to believe or how we ought to behave. We need to keep in mind that Jesus told the Pharisees that that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Not everything, but a whole lot of things. And so a worthy walk, to walk worthy of our calling, must be based on lives that are committed to obedience to His Word. They must be based... Our lives must be based on biblical truth. And that's uh, no doubt why Paul, in the inspiration of the Spirit, builds a rich tapestry of foundational theology in the first three chapters of this book. Before he launches into the next three chapters of how then shall we live. But if we jump to how then shall we live and try to live lives that are somehow pleasing to God without a foundation of God's truth, and solid doctrine will miss every time. And so the first chapter of Ephesians, God tells us that He chose us before the foundation of the world. We didn't choose Him, He chose us. And that we have redemption through blood, through the blood of Christ. And we have forgiveness of sins in Him. We're told in chapter 1 that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, the guarantee of our salvation. Nothing we can do to keep, be saved or to keep saved. It's through Christ and Christ alone. Chapter 2 tells us we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. goes on to say, in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. It doesn't get much better than that. May we believe that and live that and live like that. And chapter 3 goes on to uh, tell us of the great mystery that God includes all of us in His plan for salvation, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. 
the whole world. Christ died for the world. And it goes on, um, has this, this prayer, one of the greatest prayers in all of Scripture. Paul prays for the, for the Ephesians. And this prayer launches him into chapter 4 about walking a manner worthy of the calling. The prayer goes like this. This is it. Go back a chapter. Verse 14, Ephesians 3, 14 on. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If we want a foundation for worthy walk, there it is. There's the prayer. May we live this prayer. May we be a people where, in whom Christ dwells through faith. May we be rooted and grounded in love. May we comprehend with all the saints the, bre- the breadth and length and depth and height of, of God's love. May we be a people who are grounded in His Word so that we might be prepared to walk in a manner worthy. So now we come to chapter 4. And Paul now moves from this foundational doctrine to this practical living in Christ, what I would call evidential living. The reality of our faith evidenced by truly transformed lives. We live lives that are different. We live lives for a purpose and we live lives for the glory of God. What Paul describes as the worthy walk in chapter 4 and verse 13, so this chapter here, as mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He goes on to say that we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. So now Paul starts out this passage that we just read, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he says that he is a prisoner, probably in Rome, And in doing so, he's gently reminding his readers that a worthy walk sometimes comes at great price. Paul ended up in prison walking in a manner worthy. And of course, we've seen that truth borne out throughout church history, and I believe it's going to be a lot harder to walk that worthy life. It is now than it was even a few years ago. As we boldly proclaim Christ and the truths of His Word and live like that, we're going to be more and more seen as outsiders, I believe that the day of persecution is coming. So Paul describes himself as a prisoner for the Lord. He's not just a prisoner of the Romans. He's a prisoner for the Lord. He starts us chapter 3 in the same way. He describes himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Paul had this wonderful, I think, special God-given ability to see everything, including the really negative things in his life, in light of God's eternal purpose. Those hardships that he experienced at the hands of evil men were seen as part of God's 
refining work in his life. So in light of all this doctrine, and directly in the context of this prayer that we just read, Paul is entreating, he's exhorting. Look here in verse 1 again, he says, I urge you to walk. He's basically begging the the Ephesians, in light of this truth, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He says later that, that they must no longer walk as Gentiles, or as unbelievers do, in the futility of their minds, but be renewed in the spirit of their minds. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. You read this and you think of Romans 12, 1 and 2. We, many of us have learned this and memorized this as, a, as children. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, what? Living sacrifice. It's okay to say it. A living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be, what? Transformed. By the renewing of your mind, by the testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that word perfect could be translated mature, mature believers. Living a, as a Christian means living transformed lives. It means living lives that are being changed by Him every day. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been calling. Well, what's that calling? Well, in chapter 1, in verse 18, this Ephesians now, Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. What's God's calling? God's calling is to become more like him, to know his inheritance, to have a glimpse of the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. That's his calling so that we might become Believers who reflect the very image of Christ. The Lord is calling us to live our daily lives, our lives every day, in a way that is consistent with what we say that we believe. God is calling, God's calling is always an upward calling. That's a wonderful thing about it. It's not a calling to learn something and set back. It's a calling of constantly growing We're called to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul prays that in Philippians 3.14. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12.1. We are to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Colossians 3.2. God's calling is nothing less than a call to holiness, a call to be Set apart for him. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, it says, God has not called us for impurity, but to holiness. And in 2 Timothy 1, 9, it says, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. What's a holy calling? It's a calling that's set apart from the world. It's a calling that's consistent with what God would have us to be, reflecting His purpose and for His glory. Colossians 1.10 tells us, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. You always see this in Scripture. The knowledge of God is followed by obedience to that knowledge. It's never just knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's knowledge that knowledge that it might transform us. And there from that comes fruit, every good work. And so the mandate here is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And now Paul gets in, cha- in verse 2 to the means. How do we how do, we do that? How, what, are the, what are the character qualities, the traits, the behaviors that God calls us to display to demonstrate that we truly are believers? That there really is a difference be- between simply being a good person and being someone who really is like Christ. It's a huge and a profound difference. And may we never settle for anything less than that. So he gives us four things that are the characteristics of a worthy walk, a walk worthy of the calling. He says, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So perhaps, uh, I think, pretty sure, the most elusive of all godly attributes, but at the same time, one of the most foundational character traits of a true follower of Christ is humility. And ironically, the more we want humility and the more humble we become, well, the more easily we fall into pride over being so humble. You know, I, I do joke from time to time, and after I've done this study, I'm kind of thinking, maybe I'll give this one up. You know, like, my goal in life is to be the humblest person ever. You know, it sounds funny because it's ridiculous, and yet that's what calls us, God calls us to be. God calls us to be a people who are humble and to be humble about being, well, humble. And it doesn't sound all that appealing when you think about it. I mean, uh, especially us guys, let's be real. You know, we want to be bold and brave and strong. I don't particularly want to be meek and humble sometimes. But in biblical times, it was really interesting. Uh, I think Pastor Mike mentioned this a few weeks ago. You know, the Greeks and the Romans, they didn't have a word for humility. The word that Paul uses here for humble is really a compound word that he probably made up. Um, and, and it means to think or to judge with lowliness. To think or judge with lowliness. It's okay to make that word up, by the way, by the Holy Spirit. Amen? It's okay. So it, it means to, you know, to, to, to think or to judge with lowliness. Lowly is exactly how Jesus described himself, by the way, in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Humility doesn't mean weak. Jesus was anything but weak. He was lowly, but he wasn't weak. This, this, Jesus, the, the humble uh, God-became-man, is the same Jesus who drove the money changers out of the temple and who excoriated the Pharisees. He, he called them whitewashed graves and a brood of vipers. Jesus was able to speak the truth out of his humility. And there are two major aspects of Jesus' uh, divine character that defined his humility. And there's a lot more, but we're going to cover two this morning. 
number one, he, was, he truly considered other people more important than himself. And think about it. <clears throat> Jesus considered not just somebody, everybody. Jesus died for the sins of the what? The world, the whole world. He died for everybody. He didn't die for some people. He died for everyone, all who would believe and come to him in faith. In Philippians um, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, say, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Humility lived out and expressed means we think of others before we think about ourselves. That is really, really hard to do. It's a struggle to consider others or anybody as more important than ourselves. It's really hard even in our own families, actually giving up what we prefer for the sake of our husband or our wife or our kids, let alone our friends or our coworkers. Our daughter was trying to teach this other first principle to, the, to her kids not long ago. And uh, one of them was really struggling, and, and as he, but as he was waiting in line for his lunch with the other kids, he turns to his mo- mom and he says, uh, um, I got it. You first, after me. <laughs> well, keep that in our family for a long time. <laughs> But, you know, that's kind of the way we think sometimes, isn't it? It's you first, after me. It's so hard. And it can come down to the, the simplest of decisions. Uh, like, like, oh, what color we should paint the room? I mean, let's get an argument over that. Or where we should go on vacation. I love it. Cindy and I, sometimes when we go on vacation, we just drive down to the end of the street and say, okay, which way do you want to turn? <laughs> it's kind of fun. You should try it sometime. It saves all that hassle about planning and yeah, and all that. Okay. Okay, maybe you don't do that. Never mind. <laughs> but, you know, where do we find our joy? Do we find our joy in getting our own way? Or do we find our greatest joy in having others have their way? I mean, where does our joy come from? Is it really all about me? And even sometimes when we get around to doing the it's all about you thing, we kind of play the martyr card well, you know how that goes. So our tendency is to think of ourselves more, more highly than we should. To, and it plays out in crazy uh, ways that sometimes our, we make a big deal and get into big arguments over inconsequential things. So the hurt remains long after we forget what that was all about and what seemed so important at the time. May God spare us from that kind of behavior and that kind of thinking. And the only way to really get there, and getting there is to think of others more important than ourselves, is, is to see ourselves as God sees us. Yes, we're, we're so valuable that God gave His Son, His only Son, to become the perfect payment for our sins. Praise God for that. But we must also see ourselves as completely undeserving of God's mercy and grace. As it says in Romans chapter 9, we were once vessels of wrath, but now we've been transformed into vessels of mercy. As God's word makes perfectly clear, we would never choose God. Why? Because we were dead in our trespasses. But as Ephesians tells us, it is he who chose us from the very foundation of the world. It is he who made us alive when we were dead in sin. 
Not only did God choose us, but it says in chapter 1 of this book, He enlightened the eyes of our hearts that we might know what is the hope to which we are called, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance with the saints. What a great truth. Not only did, did Jesus consider, him, consider others infinitely more important than Himself, He was absolutely obedient to the Father. If we want to be humble, we must be obedient. There is no humility apart from obedience to God's Word. We see the, this in the, in the garden when Jesus was praying His last long prayer to His heavenly Father. He prayed this. He said, let this cup, that is the cross, pass from me. But what did He say next? Nevertheless, thy will be done. Obedience to the Father was paramount to the Lord Jesus. Philippians 2, going back to that, verse 8, describes Jesus this way. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here we find, here we find humility tied directly to obedience. In this case, Jesus' case, ultimate obedience, laying down his life that we might have new life in him. Amen. Walking humbly means simply obeying God's word. 1 John chapter uh, 2, uh, if we look at um, verse 6, it says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? So at the heart of our struggle, and by the way, it is a struggle of the heart, is our natural tendency to take back for ourselves that which God, that we have given to God, that God owns now. When we become believers in Christ, we give Him our very lives. I mean, some of you may be old enough to remember singing, uh, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. When we sing that, we believe that. When we come to Christ, we give our lives to Christ. It's no longer mine my old self is dead. I'm alive, new in Christ. It's His and His alone. But then we want to take it back. We forget that we were bought with a price. We forget that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And so, in our pride, in our self-sufficiency, we say, God, I'll just take a little bit of that back for now. And so we fall into this prideful living. And the opposite of humility. And pride was the first sin recorded in Scripture. When Satan in ages past said, I will be like the Most High. You know, um, thinking of ourselves as more highly than we ought to think uh, is all about what pride means. It's at the, heart, at the heart of pride is arrogance. They go hand in hand. In the, in the verb form of arrogance, to arrogate. We don't hear that word very often, but that's what arrogance comes from, is to arrogate. And to arrogate means to appropriate to oneself without right. To claim presumptuously. In other words, pride and arrogance are to take for ourselves that which rightly belongs to God, that we've given to Him, but we're so arrogant, we arrogate to ourselves that which rightly belongs to Him. We want to take it back. And when we think like that, we act like that often with pretty devastating consequences. My grandma, 
taught me lots of verses, and one I remember early on as a child. I think she kind of ID'd me like who I was, my basic personality pretty early. Because she thought I needed to learn this verse right away, like as a five or six-year-old. She would say, Proverbs 11.2, she'd say, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty, haughty spirit before stumbling. Okay, all right, uh, whatever that means. Look, we all need to get it, right? I'm still working on it. Because uh, don't forget in James uh, chapter 4, verse 6, we're told God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Hmm. What's, oh, by the way, it's really interesting. Secular companies, at least some of them, are beginning to recognize that really great team players and great leaders are actually humble people. This is a really new thought that's going sweeping through the industry, industries, at least some places. In fact, there's a, a really popular book out right now that, that talks about the ideal team player. And the first characteristics that are identified there is, guess what? Humility. And by that definition, uh, what they're saying, it's a, getting it pretty close, is that those, uh, the humble people are those who are at least as interested in the success of others as they are in their own success. In other words, uh, they consider others more important, other success more important than their own. At least they should try. And what they found out and what they figured out is that uh, those leaders who are other-focused somehow do better in their jobs than those who are only out for themselves. Shock. Amazing. God's truth is God's truth. One more thing, by the way, about uh, humility. It doesn't mean fear. I mean, I mean think about Moses. It's something I came across here in this study. In Numbers uh, 12, 13 tells us that Moses was more humble than any man on the face of the earth. The most humble, the humblest. Now, I'm not sure he was wearing a sign that said that, but he was considered the most humble man on the earth. And yet he's the same guy that repeatedly confronted the Pharaoh over and over again by God's power and by God's grace. Choosing to believe that others are more important than ourselves is choosing by God's grace to obey his command to love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's the greatest command because it tramples the greatest sin, the sin of pride. And it's borne out in our lives by gentleness, by patience, and forbearance. So let's look. Uh, number two here, uh, not only are we to be uh, a people that consider others more important than ourselves, uh, we're, we're to be a people that uh, are gentle. Not just humble, but gentle. True humility always produces gentleness. You know, I don't, now, I don't know about you, but I love to see ladies act like ladies, and I love to see men act like gentle men. We need to bring that word back more. Scripture uses gentleness interchangeably with, interesting, interestingly, meekness. Our, our, our modern definition of that word is timidity or lacking courage, but it's nothing like the meaning that we find in the Bible. Here it means mild-spirited or self-controlled. Jesus uses the same word in the third beatitude, blessed are the meek or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. In other words, they are the true believers. They're the true followers of Christ. 
Galatians 5 tells us, and the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And much like humility, gentleness uh, isn't weakness. It's rightly been defined as power under control. I like that. It was used in biblical times of horses who were trained to use their pretty amazing power to go where their masters wanted them to go. Now, what's really interesting, uh, Cindy and I, for a lot of years, were into horses. And we love horses, and I was always amazed at how powerful they are. And we had the privilege of, uh, of uh, acquiring a young foal, a little filly, a year old, and uh, training that, that horse until it was a really great riding horse. And um, actually, we didn't do much of the training. We had to have a, someone help us to train. <laughs> but what was interesting is, in the old days, like a decade ago, uh, horses were broken. But our horse got gentled. Today, horses are gentled. Gently training a horse so that they're ready to receive a rider. And what they have found is when you, instead of breaking a horse, you gentle a horse with tenderness and uh, care, you get much much better results and a far more, guess what? Gentle horse. What an amazing thing. Well, we know the opposite of the fruit, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, works of the flesh, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Let's be real about that. When Jesus uh, came to earth as that baby, we celebrated that just a week ago, less than a week ago, actually. He gave up the use of his divine power. When the soldiers came to arrest him in the garden, he reminded Peter, who tried to kill Malchus, if you recall, uh, do you think I cannot appeal to my father that he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But Jesus didn't do that. He chose to be gentle. Gentleness is choosing not to exercise our rights, our power, except to use that power to bless others. One of the most um, influential men I've ever known was a gentleman by the name of Ted Engstrom. Most of you probably never heard of him. Uh, he's now in heaven, but he was the president of the ministry, a worldwide ministry, World Vision, for many years, and he wielded tremendous authority. Yet he was probably the most gentle man whom I've ever met. And he humbly mentored dozens, I would say probably hundreds of young men, young Christian leaders, and he gently corrected and encouraged along the way. I never heard him exercise his authority I never heard him say, I'm in charge. I never heard him say, let me tell you how this needs to be done. He gently, gently led by example and by careful word. And one day, um, early in my career, I got a simple note from Ted in the mail. He was just thanking me for some small thing I had done and offering words of encouragement. And I, I, Frankly, uh, I was amazed that this man would take the time to write me a note and, and to show his concern and care. Uh, I was actually humbled by that. And I later found out that he wrote notes of encouragement and thanks virtually every day of his life. Wow. Well, there is a gentle man. There's a humble man. He didn't need to do that. He would rise up early in the morning. And he'd sit down. And he'd ask God for the name of someone. And in those days, he probably checked his Rolodex. And he wrote a letter, a note for some of the younger folks, I'll explain what that means. And <laughs> he, he would send it to you. He opened up this envelope from Ted, and there were words of encouragement that you never expected. 
I want to be gentle like that. I want to be humble like that. How about you? Well, the third thing we see is patience. Yeah, humility and gentleness and patience. It's the third character quality of a worthy walk. Patience is an outgrowth of humility. You know, prideful people are never patient. The word actually means long-suffering. In the Second Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And in James chapter 5, and verse 7, it says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know, patient believers are willing to wait for God's perfect time. They believe that God's time is better than their own time frame. Now, I think about Abraham. He had to wait a really long time for God to fulfill his promise. And it seemed at that point, when he's like 100 years old, that it would be absolutely impossible that God would keep his promise of a son, let alone make him the father of many nations. It was impossible. It's a wonderful thing. And God showed him, not only was it possible, but God showed him that his timing was the best timing, the perfect timing. Romans chapter 4 captures this whole thought. Romans 4, 18 and following, it says, In hope he believed against hope, talking about Abraham, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Hebrews 6.15 gets a little bit shorter version of this. simply says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Think about it. it, Whose timing would you want in your life? Whose timing do I want in my life? Do I want God to perform when I want Him to perform? Am I able to rest in Him and allow God to choose the right time? Just as He chose the perfect time for Jesus to come to this earth. The heart of patience is faith, is believing God's promise that God will actually work all things together for good to those who love Him in His perfect time. It means really believing that God's timing is the best and that we really believe that God's timing will bring Him the greatest glory, not us our greatest pleasure, our comfort. And that's what matters most. As Paul says in the first chapter, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. A final, final thought here. Trusting God doesn't mean that um, trusting God's timing instead of our own helps us to be patient with one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with them all. Amen. So the fourth element here is forbearance. Let me just touch upon this briefly. It's the last worthy walk characteristics. It's bearing with one another. It's showing tolerance. Forbearing is choosing by God's grace 
not to take offense when someone tramples on us. It's one of the most powerful expressions of love, and it needs to be based on love, as this passage tells us, because forbearance is exactly what God displayed towards us. I mean, think about it. What if God chose to punish us every time we sin? What if God chose to punish us before we ever came to Him? But Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The worthy walk, character quality, is directly linked to humility. Forbearance is choosing not to exercise our rights or asking for an apology or ever for, for a, a real or perceived wrong. And it simply means to overlook a sin in love. You remember, you remember 1 Corinthians 13, love does not demand its own way. When we forbear, we don't need to forgive in the sense of bringing the sin to another's attention or internalizing or brooding over a wrong. We simply let it go because we've already chosen to love one another as Christ has loved the church. I mean, that's what it means in 1 uh, Peter chapter 4 and verse 8. It says, above all, keep loving one another. How? Earnestly. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. When we truly want to when we truly love one another, we forbear. We don't take offense when we could take offense. And we choose to forgive before we ever need to forgive because Christ does that for us all the time. So the mandate, walk the worthy walk, the, the means of, of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance, and the motivation, let's be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit the bonds of peace. I'm going to say, say this as we close. Uh, I, love, I love Grace Church. I love coming to this place. I love the unity that we enjoy at Grace. I love it that I can come here and look each one of you in the eye and not worry about stuff. I love that you forgive me on occasion when I really, really need it. Or better than that, you just overlook and you probably say, well, Mark probably didn't mean it exactly that way. Well, sometimes I actually do. But in grace, in grace, we have unity in Him. That's the hallmark of Grace Church. And in so doing, we glorify our Father in heaven. Remember Jesus' high priestly prayer? He, he prays not only in John 17 that we be unified, as He and the Father are one, but He tells us what's the purpose I'll just read a little bit to you. In verse 20, John 17, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. We want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling? Let's be a people that are truly unified in him. Let's be a people that walk in humility. Let's be a people who are truly gentle to one another. Let's be a people who are patient with one another. Let's be a people who are forbearing and forgiving. 
Let's be unified in Him. For what purpose? So that we feel better? So that we feel really good to have this little club called grace? No. That the world may know that God sent Jesus that He has loved us and He can love them even as He loves us. That's why God has called us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. May that be true for us every day and may that be the transformational process that continues in our lives in the year to come. Lord, thank you for our time together. We pray that you would bless your word. Change us, Lord, by your grace into the very image of Christ from glory to glory. For your purpose, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.